You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Daniel. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Daniel chapter 8. The uh, eighth chapter of Daniel was used to preserve Jerusalem uh, from destruction. Uh, In 332 BC, Alexander the Great was on his way south from Greece to Egypt uh, to conquer Egypt. He was destroying every country in his path. He was like a big tornado and uh, was just leaving a wake of destruction, cities burning, cities in ruin. And as he was just cresting the mountain to destroy Jerusalem, uh, Jedua, the high priest at that time, met Alexander outside of the city with a scroll uh, really a scroll of the book of Daniel. And he opened up that scroll uh, to what we have as the eighth chapter, and he showed what was written 200 years previously, uh, Alexander the Great himself specifically uh, mentioned as the first king of Greece. So uh, Alexander was blown away. He recognized that it was definitely of him, and so he spared the city destruction and moved his way south towards Egypt. So uh, this uh, chapter is taking place in 551 BC, the third year of King Belshazzar. uh, And Daniel here has an incredible vision. It says in verse one, it's in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. Uh, To me, to me, Daniel, Uh, just kind of emphasizing that it really happened and it was really to him. And uh, just kind of that emphasis, just that rep- repetition. You could picture somebody saying something like that. And just, it was me. It was me. What an honor to receive such an amazing prophetic vision. Um, and it was his second vision. I saw in the vision, uh, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Shushan the citadel was the city where King Ahasuerus's throne was back in Esther's time, uh, where King Ahasuerus wanted his queen wife Vashti to dance, to do a little dance, get down tonight in front of everybody, and she refused to. And uh, so he banished her and then kind of had a Cinderella story there of having all the young women come in and kind of be picked out. You guys know the story. But that's the location of what's happening here uh, by the river Ulai. And he lifted his eyes and saw, uh, I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram. And uh, it had uh, two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand but he did according to his will and became great. Uh, we're going to see the, the interpretation of the vision following verse 15, and we'll, we'll kind of give a, a spoiler before we get there. But the ram here we see has two horns, and the angel Gabriel is going to interpret this vision to be those, those two horns uh, are the Medes and the Persians. And one horn was higher than the other. Uh, speaking of Persia, uh, rising up last and rising up stronger, kind of an irregular buck. Those of you that are hunters, you know, you've got this thing kind of walking through the woods. It's just, it's, it looks deformed, but there's a purpose behind it. Uh, that one kingdom of this uh, communal kingdom would, would rise up to be stronger and really end up taking over, um, taking over the Medes there. Uh, we remember from chapter 7 that there were the visions of the lion and the bear and the leopard, and then this, you know, crazy, some kind of prehistoric dinosaur or something type creature slash robot, you know. And, uh, and we know that the bear was coming up out of the water, and it was a symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire, and it came up on one side. So it was this bear that was kind of, you know, deformed a little bit. And we know that that's just kind of the same picture that's going on here. One of these empires that, that, uh, that was part of the unification was stronger than the other. So this horn is up, it's greater, and uh, pushing different directions. No animal can stand it. No one can deliver from this ram. He did anything that he wanted to do, uh, and he became great. 
Uh, we know that this is speaking of the Persian Empire ultimately. And really the Persian Empire was the last great Eastern Empire uh, that ruled and reigned. And um, in verses 5 through 8, we have uh, another uh, goat-like creature. It is a goat. As I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between uh, his eyes. So we've got a ram. So picture a ram in your mind and one horn bigger than the other. Now we've got a goat. And, um, you know, the Lord's funny. I would think that the, the ram would win in a fight, but we're going to see the goat's going to win. And uh, this goat just got this uh, coming from the west. And uh, the, tr- the interpretation is going to show us that it's the Grecian Empire. Uh, and they did indeed come from the west. It didn't even touch the ground. It has this notable horn, kind of a goat unicorn, if you can picture that. Um, verse 21 has the interpretation for it that it's, the, uh, it's Greece. Um, uh, at that time, the capital of Greece was Aegea, which actually means the city of the goat. Um, they took pride in odd things back then. Uh, but the, you know, this, this goat uh, was actually the symbol of Greece back in the day. Verse 6 shows us that um, he came to the ram that had two horns, which he'd seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. And he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver from his hands. So some of the language that's used here, just like fury, furious power, rage. Um, you know, last week we looked at the Roman Empire was that robo dinosaur or whatever that just, I mean, just stomping with residue under its feet, just completely obliterating um, the uh, Grecian Empire. And now it's Greece that's obliterating the Medo-Persian Empire. So it's just total violence, total destruction, um, just busts the horns off of this ram, humiliates the ram. I remember driving home to Lakeview uh, a few years ago to get my horses, and uh, I'm driving through uh, Paisley down towards Lakeview, and all of a sudden there's a big buck running on the side of the road. And I'm like, oh no, here it comes, you know. <laughs> I'd never hit a deer before. I'm like, stay over, stay over, and it's running right along. And then at the last second, it turns over, and there's a little dent in the front of my red truck. It looks like a chipped tooth or something. And it's from that buck, and his horns went a-flying. And I just remember, right before I put him out of his misery, just petting him and going, you poor little guy, you know, because not only was he going to die, poor guy didn't have any, uh, any horns left, didn't have any manliness left, you know. And um, this, this ram here, he too has been humiliated, has had his horns busted off. No one can even help the ram. Not that it would want to anyways. But we know the interpretation here is that that's speaking of the Grecian Empire, and then the various horns that are going to come out of this goat um, speak of the different rulers of this empire. So right now it's got this notable horn coming out of his head, which we're going to see in verse 21 is Alexander the Great. Now, to go back in history, Alexander, we know him, but if we could go back to his childhood, we'll know that he had a tutor um, who was a philosopher by the name of Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle was more than a philosopher, he was actually a military uh, strategist, and apparently he taught Alexander the Great everything he knew, because Alexander was a, a general of absolute strategy, brilliant strategy. Um, Alexander's dad's name was Philip, uh, he was a Macedonian, and it's where the, the city Philippi uh, was named after Alexander's dad. And uh, Alexander's dad, Philip, was the general of the Macedonian army, and when he died, he was actually assassinated. Uh, Alexander the Great, um, before he was the Great, took over at age 19. Uh, he was a 19-year-old, kind of five-star general of the Macedonian uh, Grecian Empire there. And so in 336 BC, he became um, the top dog of Greece, essentially. Uh, 336 BC, he inherits uh, this army, and then he uh, basically crushed some of the Grecian cities and, and brought unity together through that, and then went out to conquer the world, starting in Asia Minor. Uh, in 334 BC, he crushed, 
across Asia Minor boundaries and immediately confronts the Persians who are this ram that we've read about in this chapter. Or in chapter 7, we've seen the Persians as that big bear with three ribs in its teeth, kind of lumbering along, powerful and ferocious, but a bear. And here we see uh, Alexander confronting that bear. Uh, And history tells us that in this first battle against the Persians, he was outnumbered 500,000 to 40,000. That's about a uh, 12 to 1 difference there. Uh, So he went out uh, to fight in this battle and ended up conquering uh, the Darius general of the Persians. And then he ended up plowing, just like this says, plowing eastward and southward. He conquered Sidon and Tyre in some really miraculous um, battle victories that are prophesied of in Ezekiel. So someday we'll get to those. Um, 330 CBC, he finally makes his way to Jerusalem, conquers Jerusalem, but it's there that he's confronted by the priests and doesn't destroy Jerusalem, leaves the, the temple and the city intact. Um, 332 BC, of course, you don't need to remember the dates. I don't remember them. But um, he makes his way down to Egypt and conquers Egypt and then is crowned Pharaoh of Egypt. So all of this is done before he's 30 years old. Uh, he's now the Pharaoh of Egypt. Then he heads northwards in uh, his ultimate final conflict with the Persians. Uh, he has a battle, or he has an army of about 35,000 at this point. He attacks Xerxes, and Xerxes was known to have a million man Persian army against Alexander's 35,000 man army. So greatly outnumbered, but remember chapter 7, you've got a big bear that's kind of slow moving, powerful but slow, with this million man army kind of trying to get everyone everywhere. And then you've got this leopard. Uh, this leopard with four wings and two heads. And this thing just is fast and swift and is able to just take out the big lumbering bear of the Persian army. Uh, They had some clashes, um, but finally their battles culminated at this place called Thermopolis, which was on the coastline, um, where eventually uh, 300, you guys have probably heard of uh, 300, the movie, or... You know, it's kind of a fictional historical account of this, but um, 300 Greek warriors stood against some over 100,000 Persians uh, at this final last battle that took place. The Greeks actually lost, but it opened up a victory for the Greeks later on. They end up winning the war and completely taking over. So uh, interesting uh, history there. Uh, a lot of it you can read online and get excited about. But um, eventually he would make his way, 331 BC, to Babylon and it would fall. He would make it its capital. And from Babylon, Alexander the Great, this, um, this goat with a unicorn, <laughs> uh, would make his way over to India. And finally there, this all happens within three years, okay? All of those fights happens within three years. And finally his army says, we can't do it anymore. We can't go any further. And he'd pretty much reached the end of the world anyways. So he goes back to his capital uh, there in Babylon. And um, you read there in verse 8 of chapter 8 that therefore the male goat grew very great. So just picture him conquering. And actually it even says, remember, that he didn't even touch the ground as he went. I mean, he was just a swift conqueror. And uh, when he finally just became very great, Verse 8 says, when he'd become strong, the large horn was broken, and in the place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So the goat grew very great as he grew strong. That horn's busted off. And it tells us, you know, history tells us that in 323 BC, he's 33 years old at this time. Uh, He's done conquering the world. And history tells us he would cry himself to sleep at night crying out, are there no more worlds to conquer? And uh, he, you know, so depressed, that was his whole life, that he has a big party on a rainy night and breaks out the liquor, gets drunk, goes for a walk in the rain. Oh, I love the rainy nights. Uh, he loved the rainy nights and he went out and caught pneumonia and ended up dying, uh, dying at age 33. Uh, just before he died, he ordered his body to be preserved in honey 
And so he was buried in a vat of honey so that when his resurrection took place, his body would be preserved. And he will one day have a resurrection, um, but he hasn't resurrected yet. And just to kind of do a little um, uh, contrast, compare and contrast, mostly contrast, you've got Alexander, 33 years old, conquering into conquered to make himself a great name. You guys know of another 33-year-old man who didn't shed the blood of millions, but shed his own blood that others could be picked up out of the pit, out of the miry clay, could, if you would, be exalted, you know, get to rule and reign with Christ. Of course, that's Jesus. His body wrapped not in honey, but in burial cloths, and he did rise from the dead. And so, you know, just to show that uh, we're going to read at the end of the study tonight, Revelation 19, where it says that he is the king of kings, you know, and yet he came as a suffering servant, um, not as a conquering warrior in his first time coming, but he will come as a conquering warrior. So while Persia is a ram and Greece is a goat, Jesus is the lamb. You know, uh, Jesus, as John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Revelation 5, 6, you almost have a Daniel-esque vision where John says, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of heaven, among the four living creatures, the cherubim, in the midst of all the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Uh, So Jesus has those visions about him as well, or we're given those visions of Jesus as well, but as a lamb who'd been slain, laying down his life for the sins of the world. In the place of that one horn that busted off came four notable horns. Um, You know, they pointed north, south, east, and west. Um, These four horns, we're going to read later on in the chapter, Um, are his four generals that raised up after him. So he was basically the king, uh, less in power than Nebuchadnezzar, and less in power than uh, Xerxes or Darius, but but still powerful. But when he died, four generals came, uh, four of his generals came, and they divided the kingdom into four parts. Uh, We've got uh, Cassandra, uh, Lysimachus, Ptolemy and Seleucus. And um, so that's those four horns. And in verse 9, it says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Are you guys loving this vision yet? I mean, funky horns growing and busting off, and others growing in their place. And picture the, yeah, okay. And then one horn having a horn grow off of it. I mean, this is just irregular. Am I talking, uh, you know what I'm saying? But uh, one comes out, a little horn, exceedingly great, and it has also these four winds of heaven, north, uh, south, east, and west. Um, And it goes, verse 9 says, towards the glorious land, towards Israel, um, the land flowing with milk and honey, or the pleasant land, perhaps your version says. And it grew up to the host of heaven, And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. So this horn is demonic in nature. Uh, You look at the scriptures, you read of the hosts of heaven being cast down. And it always is pointing towards the fall uh, of Lucifer, of the archangel. You read about in Isaiah 14, 12 verses, or Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So speaking of Lucifer, his pride, his arrogance, wanting to not only be like God, but to be worshipped as God. And we're going to see that in uh, really his plan to try and uh, ruin God's plan throughout history. Um, but this little horn comes out, demonic in nature. Revelation 12.4 tells us about Lucifer as well, that when he fell, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And a dragon stood before the woman who's ready to give birth 
to devour her child as soon as it was born. So um, we read this little horn, uh, just demonic in nature. Verse 11, he even exalts himself as high of the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So the little horn is going to declare himself to be God. He's going to take away the daily sacrifices that were, uh, we were told of in Exodus 29. In verse 12, because of the sin, because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn to, uh, to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So what's interesting, this is exactly what happened in history. One of the four horns out of the Grecian empire, one of the four generals, the Seleucian general, uh, the Seleucian family had the control of Babylon and Syria. That was their portion of the kingdom that they got to keep, the, the portion that was still kind of over that Babylon area. And from the Seleucian family came this infamous individual that the Bible refers to as the little horn, okay? Um, it's not the same little horn that we read of last week in Daniel chapter 7. They're different horns. That little horn was the Antichrist that will come at the end of the age. Um, he's coming out of the ten nations, the ten toes of the revived Roman Empire, the feet partly mixed of clay and partly mixed of iron. This little horn, uh, this little piggy, uh, this little horn... <laughs> Didn't go to market. He's going to destroy the world. Um, This little horn comes from one of the four horns of Alexander's empire, the Seleucid dynasty. So why would there be two different little horns, one chapter after another? It kind of confuses the expositor at first. But it's okay in Scripture to have dual fulfillment of prophecy. It's also okay to have pictures and foreshadowings and illustrations. And that's what we have here It's an illustration and a foreshadowing of the Antichrist, but it's not the actual Antichrist from Revelation chapter 13 himself. Um, uh, The little horn of Daniel chapter 8, we get to look back at it and see that that he's already come. So who is this guy, this infamous individual out of the Seleucid dynasty? His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, came in 175 to 164 BC. He ruled... Um, and he came as the leader of Syria and Babylon. He called himself, he, he gave himself this name, Theos Epiphanes, which means God has manifested himself. He thought he was pretty awesome. Imagine if one of us gave ourselves that name. God has just manifested himself. There's a little bit of pride there. He wasn't even really that great of a ruler. Um, and, and many called him Antiochus, it wasn't his actual name, but because he came from the region of Antioch. But he had this eccentric behavior about him. He was a little bit like Nero. He had these capricious actions, um, even insanity at times. And it would, lead to his, it would lead to his contemporaries, especially the Jews, calling him Epimenes, which means the mad one. It was kind of a play on words on Antiochus Epiphanes. So some people called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means just the insane one. He's crazy. He's delirious, much like Nero would be in the Roman Empire. He would expand his empire. He would become bloodthirsty. He would kill everyone to get his way. He had a hatred for the Jews. He demanded to be worshipped by the Jews, much like the Antichrist that he foreshadows is going to. And as you read here, that he casts truth down to the ground, uh, he actually got all the scrolls that he could find of the scriptures from the Jews and burned them. Uh, so casting truth to the ground. Uh, he would build a statue of himself, put it in the temple, and demand that it be worshipped, a foreshadowing of uh, the eventual Antichrist. And um, yet the Jews didn't want to worship him, and so a great holocaust began. 40,000 Jews would be killed in one day in and around the temple uh, because they wouldn't worship. This is really a foreshadowing that we read of in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 13, 12 and 13. Uh, In a couple months, more than a million people would be slaughtered by Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 12 says, um, because of the transgression, army was, excuse me, I jumped the gun there. 
Uh, but notice, uh, he did all and he prospered. He did all this prosper. Speaking of uh, witchcraft, sorcery, occultic uh, practices, and, um, and prospered in the midst of that. Uh, some believe he was actually demon-possessed, that the same demon that uh, possessed uh, Hitler and Nero was possessing Epiphanes at this time. But uh, December 15th, history tells us, 168 B.C., uh, he butchers a pig on the altar inside the temple. If you know anything about Jewish practices and their diet that they were to have, the pig was huge no-no, right? Um, so he, with the hatred for the Jews, slaughters a pig, offers it on the altar, and puts its blood on the walls, on the floor, on the articles um, of the temple there. And uh, <clears throat> then he would force the priests to drink the blood of the pigs and to eat the raw flesh of the pigs. Um, and so he's called the little horn because he really foreshadows who the uh, Antichrist is eventually going to be. He's going to come on the scene hating the Jews. He's going to set up an image of himself, Revelation tells us, in the temple, demanding to be worshipped. He's going to uh, uh, um, most likely destroy Christian literature in the same way that Epiphanes did. And uh, just like the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus, so is Epiphanes uh, a, a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. going to cause the whole world to worship him. So Antiochus is really just a foreshadowing of the one who's to come. Uh, first, the Antichrist, we read in Revelation chapter 6, he's going to come in peace, making a covenant with many, but then he's going to break that covenant and he's going to usher in uh, the middle of the tribulation what will become the great tribulation. Just major pouring out of God's wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. Um, you'll notice that the hatred for the Jews, it's still not over, is it? A couple thousand years later, how much have we seen the Romans and their destruction of Jerusalem, their hatred of the Jews, uh, you know, the, the Nazis, uh, and to this day, the hatred uh, just keeps going against the Jews. Um, and I, I believe that's because, you know, Satan knew originally the Christ was going to come through the bloodline of the Jews, uh, and now he knows God's plan that one day all Israel will be saved and Jesus will set up his kingdom as that final king of the Jews. Satan doesn't like that. So, you know, he, he's not even comparable in power. There's no yin and no yang going on here. Jesus is in total control, but Satan thinks he's got a chance. In fact, at the end of Revelation chapter 12, uh, it says he's kicked out of uh, heaven, Satan is, and he knows that he's got a little time, and so he just goes crazy with all sorts of sucker punches and cheap shots uh, against, um, against Israel and against her offspring. So uh, the wickedness of this little horn, this little Antichrist, definitely the spirit of the Antichrist in him, yet really a foreshadowing of the one who's yet to come. Um, and you know what the cool thing is? As Christians, we don't get our eyes on the Antichrist. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're not panicked about the antichrist are we who are we looking for we're looking we're looking for jesus right we keep our eyes on jesus we're not you know worried and miffed about it um because we know that god's in control he's going to set up his kingdom he's going to rule and uh verse 13 then i heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation the the giving of both the sanctuary of desolation, or excuse me, uh, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So uh, these angels crying out, how long, what's, you know, how long is this uh, little horn going to get to kind of have some control there? Uh, the, the number's given, it's about 250 days short of seven years. And um, interesting, the day the Antiochus blasphemed there in the temple, its own little abomination of desolation, there was a priest named um, Mattathias. Uh, he refused to drink the blood and he refused to eat the flesh. And he grabbed a sword of a soldier that was uh, compelling him and he ended up slaughtering a few soldiers before he himself was killed. Well, Mattathias had, uh, I believe it was five sons uh, the oldest, whose name was Judas Maccabeus. 
Uh, and he was actually given that last name, Maccabeus, as a nickname, and it means sledgehammer. And, I mean, this guy, I don't know if there's any movies about him, but Hollywood needs to get off, you know, get off and just start doing them. Because uh, this guy was, was like David, you know, he was like, you know, these great warriors in Scripture, and yet there's not much um, in the Bible really at all about him. But um, Judas Maccabeus was so outraged with his brothers that they began to fight some guerrilla-style warfare and chase Antiochus Epiphanes out of the region, uh, and they would just just go to town fighting way outnumbered with great strategy uh, until, you know, finally Rome would come to power and they would set up a little uh, treatise with Rome. Uh, so Judas Maccabeus, just a total stallion. But as he and his brothers kicked Ep- uh, Antiochus Epiphanes out of Jerusalem, uh, the battle raged for quite a while, uh, ended up being that number there, 2,300 days when finally they were able to come back in, clean up the blood out of the temple, clean up the desolation, and then uh, set up a cleansing time for the temple. And as they set the candles up to be lit in the temple, they noticed that they only had one vat of oil that would last them one day, and they needed eight days um, worth of oil. And so these brothers prayed uh, that the Lord would keep the oil burning, and for eight days, the oil kept these lamps going. And that is where the Feast of Lights came in to celebrate what God did in that miracle of cleansing the temple. We know it as Hanukkah. It's those eight days uh, in December that they celebrate uh, that miracle there. But uh, September 6th, 171 BC was when Antiochus Epiphanes did his own mini abomination of desolation. Uh, and December 25th, Christmas Day, they didn't know it at the time, um, was the day that the Feast of Lights finished up and the temple was cleansed. 2,300 days exactly. So, um, verses 15 through 19. Uh, so, so what? You know, um, so, the promises of the Lord are yes and amen, are they not? And last week we began with, I am the Lord. I know the end from the beginning. I mean, gosh, we are on the side of the one who knows the exact days that things are going to be accomplished. And um, so thankful that that is our God. Verse 15, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So I wonder who this man was speaking to Gabriel in a man's voice. In Daniel so far, we've seen one like the Son of Man mentioned a few times and believing it's Jesus in those appearances. Perhaps this was Jesus again, and his voice says, Gabriel, let Daniel know the interpretation. Uh, Gabriel, who would tell Zacharias that he was going to have a son, that son being John the Baptist. Gabriel, the one who would tell the virgin from Galilee that she would have a son, and his name would be Jesus, uh, is now going to tell Daniel some very specific interpretations to a futuristic prophecy. Um, and so uh, verse, six, uh, verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, the vision refers to the time of the end. So I want to underline that. The vision refers uh, to the time of the end. Uh, kind of a dual fulfillment of prophecy here. It's a time of the end of the Gentile kingdoms that we've read about since chapter 2, all the way from Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and the, the uh, revived Roman Empire. It refers to a time of the end of those Gentile kingdoms reigning on the earth. It also refers to just a time of the end, the, the end of the days until Jesus uh, comes back. And uh, so a, a time of the end. Verse 18, now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. Perhaps Daniel had fainted here uh, just from the, the depth of this vision. and It just reminded me of a, a time in my life. It was right after my dad died and we came back to Lakeview and I was just spending a lot of time riding my horse out in the range, you know, and just spending time with the Lord and grieving and took my pickup up behind our house to a pasture where some cattle were lowing, you know, where some cattle were grazing up there and 
just on a full moon night with my dog in the back of my pickup, spent the night up in the back of my truck. And uh, in the middle of the night, I mean, I'm just out, just exhaustion from mourning and from weeping and emotions. And I'm just there in the back of my pickup. In the middle of the night, uh, my dog kind of stirs me and I crack my eyes open and I see that uh, there's a bull and he had come, I had my tailgate down and there's a bull with his head inside my pickup and he's like nudging on my foot. But I was so knocked out. I mean, I was so just, just knocked out that uh, I just couldn't do anything. My, my body wouldn't move. And I remember my dog getting up and kind of going up to the bowl. And, and I remember just all I could do was <laughs> just kind of blow the bowl away, you know. Kind of wiggle my foot. And, oh, gosh. Yeah, okay. You know, and uh, in reading this, you know, I just feel like that's Daniel. You know, he's just like just so much. Just the power of this vision, the, the just the impact of what it means for the history of the world. And just, you know, he's just on his face. And this angel has to come, you know, has to just pick up Daniel and set him up. Just as Ezekiel, you know, when the presence of the Lord came in chapter 2, verse 2, Ezekiel was to stand as the Lord showed him his glory. And verse 19, he says, Look, I'm making known to you what will happen in the latter times of the indignations. You might just underline those words, latter times. Indignation speaks of God's fury against sin or his wrath against sin. And it literally speaks of God like foaming at his mouth uh, in wrath against sin. And man, doesn't that just give you a wake-up call to what sin is and what sin does? Um, That sin is serious, that sin is so costly um, you know, and reading a lot about all these battles today and just trying to get a picture of what this, you know, what this uh, goat was, you know, with the horn and like, man, what, what's the big deal? I mean, really, come on. And just to think of like millions of soldiers fighting and, you know, and the bloodshed and the, the agony of all the wars throughout the century and all the murders and all the heartbreak and all the sexual sin and all the times people have been ripped off and that that's just the effects of sin culminating to the cross at Calvary where God himself was executed on a wooden implement that uh, in, in his nation meant that he would be cursed. You know, um, how serious sin is. That it, it causes indignation for God. And that we might just taste of that, that we might understand that fury of God against sin and that it would, by his spirit, give us a hatred for sin. And we're going to read in Romans probably in about two weeks just of that list of sin. You know, we all know it. We've all read it. That list of sin, but then it culminates to, and not only those that do those sins, but those that approve of those sins. And man, just that's for a lot of us probably some of the most convicting, like, man, I don't murder, but it was a really big deal. You know, I don't, yeah. you know, I don't adultery, but in my heart, I kind of approve of it. You know, and, and gosh, that we would hate sin, that we would have indignation, that we would froth at the mouth against sin. Let's pray right now about that. Lord, in thinking about that, just to get a, we live in Prineville. We just hardly ever see bloodshed. We just don't really get it. We've had some effects of sin and it's been painful, but just we don't get it, Lord. We just don't understand the drasticness of sin and Lord, just I'm sure if we could stand there at Calvary and have seen you and your lamb that was slain form, we would just vomit at the thought of sin. We would just be angry against it. We would crush sin every moment we saw it. And Lord, we just stop in the middle of this Bible study and we ask for indignation against it, Lord. Even kind of jumping out of the text a little, just knowing that one day, you're going to pour your wrath out upon this world in indignation. And Lord, we just, we just don't want to have any part of sin. We don't want it to be even mentioned among us. Consecrate us by your Spirit. Make us a holy people for your glory. Amen. Amen. Uh, that wasn't in my notes, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so uh, it all refers to uh, that final uh, moment at 
three and a half years of revelation, three and a half years into the tribulation, when the Antichrist is going to set himself up as the little horn of chapter 7, coming not out of the Alexandrian Empire, but out of the revived Roman Empire, and uh, he's going to declare himself to be God. He's going to bring an end of sacrifice and offerings, and he's going to have the authority and the, and the power of Satan himself uh, behind him. And uh, so, uh, verse, I lost, I lost track with the, uh, thank you guys. Um, the appointed time of the end shall be at the end of verse 19. Just notice that God has appointed a day. He's sovereign. You know, he knows that day. He knows exactly when it's coming. Jesus tells us, Matthew chapter 24, that no one knows the day or the hour. Uh, not even the angels in heaven, but the Father only. But the Father knows. And Jesus, man, he's like an airborne paratrooper waiting there at the, at the threshold of heaven, you know, looking at the light. Right now the light's red, but it'll be green one day. Gosh, can you imagine that day? It's jump time, you know, flip the switch. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Um, and uh, there's an appointed time that the end is going to be, and it, it's all pointing towards that day. The ram that you saw having the two horns, they're the kings of the Medes and the Persians. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that's between his eyes uh, is the first king. So that's Alexander the Great. And you can just picture being that priest, taking the scroll out and saying, look, you know, look, that was the Medes and the Persians. The scriptures specifically say that. And at the time, Daniel didn't know that he was writing history, but but look, here you are. You're the first king, Alexander. And as for that broken horn, I mean, one day your horn's going to be broken, buddy. Uh, the four will stand up in its place are the four kingdoms that shall rise out of the nation, but not with its power. Those four generals. Verse 23, and in the latter times of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features who understands sinister schemes um so he's just there's something different about this king uh he's sinister he understands dark sentences is what that means uh he's into occultic practices and witchcraft and you know you just see um you know hitler uh who kept a demonic uh phrase book next to his bed of all conjuring up all sorts of demonic uh, spirits that he would read every morning. That was his cute little quiet time, you know, every morning. Um, just uh, this guy is going to look Hitler look like a, make Hitler look like a teddy bear, you know. And um, verse 24 just goes on to say, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And uh, we know that the Lord gives them their power. You know, Daniel 2, we've read that. Um, but if you, as you look at Revelation chapter 13, you read of the beast coming out of the sea. It's the Antichrist. And it says that the dragon gave him his power. That's what it says there. Uh, and so the power that he has, um, you know, of course, ultimately, it's the Lord. He's sovereignly letting these things happen um, to fulfill his purposes. But Satan thinks he's got it in control here. Um, and uh, so he's kind of leading this guy. He's going to destroy fearfully, and this is really speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes, foreshadowing the Antichrist, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. So uh, the, the Jews there will be slaughtered. Verse 25, through his cunning, through his craftiness, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. So he's built his throne upon lies. And as Revelation 6 says of the Antichrist who's going to come, he confirms a covenant with many, but he's going to break that covenant um, there at the abomination of desolation. Uh, with deceit, he rules. Kind of that uh, the ends justify the means thing. He's going to lie to get his way. He's going to destroy the rich. Uh, he's even going to lift his heart up um, against the prince of princes. Uh, he's going to defy Jesus or attempt to defy Jesus, but shall be broken without human means. And so as we look at 2 Thessalonians, I haven't had you flip much tonight. Let's look at two scriptures, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, and we're going to look at Revelation 19. 
2 Thessalonians 2.8 says the lawless one, and then the lawless one will be revealed, the Antichrist, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. Talk about bad breath. He'll destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonder. So foreshadowing, I mean, this is, this is Paul writing. This isn't him referring back to uh, Epiphanes, but he's foreshadowing the, the lawless one who's going to come, who almost mirrors Epiphanes, okay? Um, he's going to be destroyed without human means by the breath of Jesus' mouth. Um, he's going to be, you know, have power, satanic power. He's going to have signs and lying, deceptive wonders. So Paul for, uh, prophesies of the Antichrist who's going to come. Now let's look back to Revelation 19 and just kind of close the study tonight in just a blaze of glory um, with this radical prophecy of the little horn being destroyed without human means. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Let's all say the name together just to, to, to prove to all those other kingdoms who's going to rock it. King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So there's that little horn. He's going to try to take out the rock cut without hands from, from chapter 2 of Daniel. And then the beast was captured, but with him the false prophet those who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So the king of kings and the lord of lords is going to come and pulverize the horn that came out of um, the revived Roman Empire, um, and uh, he, he crushed, he conquered without human means, just with the, the word of his mouth. Although he had an army following him that thought they were gonna, maybe going to get a piece of this devil that had been just a thorn in their side for so long, he, he takes all the, the credit with the victory there. Uh, there in Daniel 8, just finish up the chapter. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Ken, why don't you come on up and... and uh, just, man, what a, a word from Daniel there that he'd gotten this vision and it was true. I, Daniel, even I, Daniel, got this vision. It's true. And we can look back on it and say, Daniel, you have no idea, man. We can look back and say, look at how faithful the Lord is. Look at how faithful he is. And, uh, 
Just as in chapter 7, it ends in verse 28 with, after that vision, he was, his thoughts exceedingly troubled him. His countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Same thing happened with this vision. He couldn't eat and uh, just for days was just incapacitated. But notice it says, then I went back about the king's business. And as we're given this vision from Daniel tonight, we too get to go out into the world. And what do we get to do? Be about the king's business. We get to, out of love for this king that we've seen as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, whose name is the word of God, we get to go and be about his business in obedience because we love him. We get to tell the world about him. We get to obey the commission. We get to say no to sin tomorrow. We get to go out there and tell people about him. We can go out tomorrow and open up this prophecy and share with our coworkers. Hey, hey, I just want to throw something by you. I just want to, you know, hey, did you know that this chapter, Alexander the Great was going in and, you know, and this was read to him and Alexander himself said, man, that's crazy. I'm not going to destroy, you know, we get to use these scriptures to point people towards Jesus. We get to be about the king's business. And as you look at Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, uh, those, the Olivet Discourse, the prophecy about the end, Jesus says, watch, watch, be ready. You don't know what hour your Lord's coming. Don't be like the foolish servant who was given the talents and then buried them in a field and neglected to be about the king's business. Let's be about the king's business, huh? Let's cry out for power for that uh, today. And so, Lord, we get our eyes on you. Let's go ahead and stand. We just fix our gaze upon you, Lord. The, the little horn of chapter 8 and the little horn of chapter 7, we're astounded at the accuracy of your sovereignty and your purposes will be accomplished. But Lord Jesus, we don't look to them. We're not stoked and excited about the Antichrist coming. But Lord Jesus, we are thrilled to the core that one day we're going to see you face to face. That one day mountains are going to bow down. Looking at Barnes Butte today, Lord, and just thinking that that mountain is going to see the coming of the Lord and, and will probably be destroyed. Lord, we look to that day when you'll come, when the, the mountains will be replaced and removed, the sea will be changed, the physical appearance of this earth because of your might. But Lord, more than all of that, we look to the day when we'll look into your eyes and we'll get to say, we love you, Lord. We love you. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Empower us, Lord Jesus, to be about the king's business. Even tonight, Lord, even in the morning when we arise, when we crawl out of bed, we're about the king's business. On our day off, we're about the king's business. Lord, when we fellowship, when we hang out, when we labor and work and toil under the sun, and all that we do, Lord, that we'd be about your business. We just worship you, close in worship right now, Lord. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.